This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast based on true events, but with artistic license in depicting exactly how cool we are. Today we're discussing TV and film dramatizations of ordinary people in newsworthy situations, docudramas, spurred by the recent film May, December, about Mary Kay Letourneau. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, and if my references don't check out, it's just because my life was sabotaged by my bitter ex-girlfriend. I'm Al Baker, trying to think of a way that I, too, can have myself played by two incredibly good actors in the same movie. I'm Sarah Lynn Bruck, and if I'm feeling queasy, I know I've either been overindulging in too much junk food or by watching docudramas. And my name is Lawrence Ware, and I should have been nominated for an Oscar, but I got gypped. Is May December up for an Oscar? Nobody. And really, Charles Melton should have been nominated, but of course he was not yet. Nobody got nominated from this film. So yes, that was the film that I think, Sarah, you suggested we do this. I was trying to figure out what else is in this category. There are a lot of biopics and things out there. I didn't really want to be doing the Leonard Bernstein film or whatever for this, because that seems like a fundamentally different thing. I also didn't want to go full on true crime because that's its own thing. But it's hard... Most of these have something to do with crime. So I watched some of The Shrink Next Door. I watched uh, Reality, about reality winner getting arrested by the FBI. I had watched Inventing Anna last year, this fraud one. And I just, thanks to some postponement, watched the entire first season of Dirty John, which was based on a podcast. And so that's what I was sort of referencing in my open. (laughs) I don't know. Fraud is less of a bummer than murder, although that particular show got pretty nasty in there. Dirty John, I listened to the podcast, but I didn't watch the show that it was based on. But I think it's interesting that podcasts have sort of taken the mantle of kind of 2020 type of shows that we used to see on like Friday nights and stuff. I feel like podcasts now, you know, you can listen to true crime podcasts and now they're making docuseries and docudramas out of them, which is fascinating. Do you guys like this genre? I wanted to know, like, is this something that you enjoy? I generally struggle with it, but I struggle with it for reasons that made me like May, December an awful lot, because I I struggle with the fact that what you're purportedly doing is telling a real story, but just by virtue of making a movie about this story, you're inevitably going to screw something up as far as like the story you're telling relates to the reality of what happened. My favorite thing about May, December, among many, many wonderful things about the movie was how much it tackled that issue really head on. And it seemed to me like one of the central theses of the movie was that it was trying to talk about like the futility of its own exercise in a way. I really enjoy podcasts that are about because podcasts tend to be more journalistic, more like factually based. Like they don't go very sensational with podcasts to kind of try to kick the store. Whereas with like when I think about this kind of genre, I think about Lifetime a lot. Lifetime movies, they take this and they kind of really pump up the drama and pump up the stuff. Right. And so I don't like that. And I don't like documentaries that are manipulative. And so these stories have a tendency to become very manipulative depending upon how you tell the story. So I like the podcast version of these, not so much television, not so much dramatizations like Dr. Death on Peacock, right? Is a version of this and Dr. Death, the documentary is pretty good. It's pretty journalistic. Sticks to the facts. I mean, they play around with, you know, expectations and when to reveal things, but you know, they kind of stick to the facts. The TV show, it's like really hypes up the drama and I don't like that. The, The acting's, tends to get cheesy for me. I don't like that kind of stuff. But the podcast, I love it. I love podcasts when they do it right. Do you think if it's really well done, I mean, there's definitely a big difference between a lifetime version of this story versus the HBO version of it. I mean, it's like inventing Anna. Everybody was talking about that when it came out and what's her name's the weird accent and all that kind of stuff. What's inventing Anna? Remind me what that was. It was a young socialite who pretends to be rich and thereby gets to leech on to people and stay in really fancy hotels and never pay the bills and just posing as like this Russian heiress when she is no such thing. Okay. I don't think I've seen that. Is that on Netflix? Like, what's that on? Yes, it is. It's very, very good. Okay, I need to watch that. I haven't watched it. Oh, wow. If Alex, then I'm, you know, I'm going to watch it then. Featuring Julia Garner as Anna Delvey. Delvey is the person, and she, I think, just got out of jail. So these things come back. You mentioned, Sarah, the act, because Gypsy Road Blanchard got out. She's in the news big time right now. Gypsy Rose is. 
Well, she also, speaking of Lifetime, like she has agreed to do a docu-series with Lifetime that's on. I, I watched the first episode and that was about as much as I wanted to watch that. But, you know, I was struck by how important it seems to some of these people like Gypsy Rose Blanchard to tell her own story. The act was, again, people won Emmys for their performances in that show. And I watched it. You know, I watched that show and I enjoyed it. But it wasn't really enlightening me in any important way. I was strictly entertained, even if it was well acted, it was well produced. I didn't really learn a whole lot from watching that. You know, it didn't enlighten me in any way. And I just thought, God, that poor girl is now in jail. And now she wants to tell her story because she probably feels that no one can tell it better than she can. And then on top of all that, what the hell is she going to do now that she's out of jail for murdering her mother, you know, or helping murder her mother? What else is she supposed to do other than exploit herself? Become a podcaster. That's what Amanda Knox, you know, who was not guilty, very clearly, like wrongly imprinted, but like is famous for this thing. She has a podcast that I listened to <laughs> at some point in the last few months. Seriously, what is she talking about on her podcast? Murders? Like, what is she talking about? No, it was people who have gone through extraordinary things telling about their worst moments. Okay. Like the show that I, it comes to mind is something that I, I, I didn't watch, but I saw someone else watching was called The Curious Case of Natalia Grace. It's about like a person who is, I don't know what the right word is, a little person. And like she goes through extraordinary circumstances and it's like two seasons of this. And like, I don't like the show because she seems very, I don't know if she's authentic or not, but like that's an example of this kind of story where someone's gone through an extraordinary circumstance. A lot of bad stuff has happened. It's kind of sensationalized. And so they leech on to this and tell that story in a documentary kind of format and it's doing gangbusters. Like, I think it's going to get a third season. Like, that's just kind of what happens with these kind of stories. Can we distinguish between, so the documentaries, including the podcasts, are are documentaries. They're interviews with the actual people as opposed to these dramatizations, which I, they are very much redundant. You know, I watched a documentary about Amanda Knox that went through that and then you know, a movie I think came out with somebody acting that I'm like, I don't need to see this. I already know beat by beat exactly what this was. There was another, I can't remember which it was, but a, a woman who had killed a friend and the husband got blamed for it. Anyway, I had listened to a podcast that sort of stepped right through the facts of that. And then again, when the dramatization came out, there was no point. Should they stop making dramatizations and focus on documentary series or just documentaries or podcasts? I mean, which do you like better? I feel like I probably would have liked, enjoyed better. Just like I enjoyed the Dirty John TV show, not having heard anything about that show. Yeah, I didn't I didn't like the, the TV show because I heard the podcast. So it depends on, on like what you prefer. In that situation, I think it opens up a more interesting conversation, which is what the dramatizations are for. Because if all this is about is like understanding the facts of the case and like opening or like exposing a wider public to what actually went down, then yeah, all we would need is a documentary. But we don't just get the documentaries, we get the dramatizations too. So why do we also get the dramatizations? One obvious answer is like the more cynical one, which I maybe tend towards a little bit, which is that people just love rubbernecking and it's easier to rubberneck at a sensationalized drama than it is at a kind of responsibly motivated journalistic investigation, whether that's in a, a documentary or whatever else it might be. But that's like the less generous view of what's going on. Is there something else that we get from these kinds of dramatizations? I mean, ideally they should just be entertaining films. So I didn't know, of course I knew the Michaela Torno story, And in fact, I don't need to see this initial, you know, it assumed that you already know the basic story of like what happened with her and gave you a new story with like good direction and great acting, exploring, I guess, still true events. Or was this like, was there actually an actress that visited her? I don't think that happened. But but I think they used the kernel of truth to spit it off into like. So so he imagines this and he kind of puts it together, but there's a kernel of truth there, but it's not exactly what happened, I don't think. 
the facts in the actual case itself that were reported in the movie, like everything that happened while she was a teacher and while he was a kid, all of that is perfectly accurate. There's no real life analog of the Natalie Portman character and there's no real life version of that like particular film. So it makes me think that like May December is a different case to something like Inventing Anna because May December is clearly trying to say something about the process of making movies and TV shows like Inventing Anna. I'm going to gently disagree with you, Al. I think that May, December... Drama, (laughs) fighting, let's fight, guys. I do think that there is, especially if you're already familiar with the case, and, and actually you guys are probably 10 years or eight years younger than me. So I very vividly remember this, taking over the tabloids in the 90s. This was in front of our faces, whether we liked it or not. And I think that movies like this kind of scratch some sort of weird itch that we all have. And for May, December, there was a part of me that thought, oh, I wonder what that couple was like 20 years later. You know, there was still a part of me that kind of wondered, what is a couple like that? How is their day to day? You know, and the, the fact that this movie explores what that relationship might be like. And I know that Mary Kay Latorno died, I think, in 2020 of cancer. But what that relationship was like as they got older and he became of age and became a parent and a bona fide grown up, you know, what what did that look like? And I don't think I'm the only person who was kind of wondering what happened to them, which is doesn't make me feel proud, but but I wondered it. If that's the itch that May December was trying to scratch, I don't think they did a particularly good job. I think it's part of it. Because the minutiae of their day-to-day, it was really interested in the emotional dynamics at play in that relationship and those kinds of things. But one thing I learned about May December is that they didn't, I can't remember what the guy's name, but the real life guy in that relationship, he went on social media shortly after the movie came out and said that nobody from the film contacted him prior to making it to ask about his take on any on anything in the story, which I thought was remarkable for two reasons. Firstly, because you would think that's just something that people would do if you're making this kind of thing. But also because there's this incredibly intense scene in the film where the character who plays that guy like shouts at Natalie Portman about how this isn't a story, this is my life. And one of the things that the movie is clearly trying to talk about is how dangerous it is to abstract real lives into pieces of entertainment. And it was a little bit odd and and disappointing to discover that they'd done the same thing in making this movie. But that's it. This is still a movie about that. And I think it's very self-aware, but it's still a movie made for entertainment that's still about that. And it has all of these different layers to it, but that's one of them. One of the layers is that this is a movie about that. I think, Lawrence, you were asking a while ago here about what's the difference between these sort of lifetime movie versions and now these trumped up, you know, huge stars. This whole thing, especially watching Dirty John, made me think about a miniseries I had seen as a kid, which I have now looked up from 19, oh, gosh, 1994, starring Harry Hamlin called In the Best of Families, Marriage, Pride, and Madness. A woman breaks up with her husband and and the woman like marries Harry Hamlin, who's a shifty guy, and I'll just ruin it. At the end, it's about a custody thing, but then the Harry Hamlin character is sort of like the Dirty John character and ends up like blowing everybody up in a car with his kids. So there you go. Wait a minute, are you, you wanna, serious? Yes, is, is yes. That a, is that a real story? This is a real, <laughs> and it's based on a nonfiction called wow. Bitter Blood, Wiki is telling me. I just, and you know, this is Harry Hamlin, not as the LA Law, Clash of the Titans height of his career, but in his, you know, slumming, doing these, of course, you know, a lot of these things are aimed at women. I remember The Burning Bed being a really famous Fair Fawcett. I never, I don't think I ever actually watched it, but it was like, that was huge. You're probably a, a little young, Lawrence, but uh, I'm sure that was, was there not a movie about the woman who cut off her husband's junk? Penis is the in- correct term, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. What's that woman's name? But yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. I think there was a movie about that situation, but not like. Oh, and Tom Cruise <laughs> plays the guy. Like, no, they didn't do that back then is what I'm saying. You guys remember Tiger King? There was like a big thing. Oh, of course. You yes. know, whenever we were in pandemic. Okay. And so they, they tried to make a dramatization television show, Joe versus Carol on Peacock. It's really well done. The acting is good. They got 
really good actors. They got good directors, good writers, all that kind of stuff. But it bombed, whereas the Tiger King stuff blew up. And so it makes me wonder if maybe people don't want those dramatizations. Like, they serve no one. You want the real people. You Like, so, for example, when I watch a dramatization, I usually, as I'm watching it, Google who the people are so I can see what they actually look like and know what really happened. And I'm judging the thing that I'm watching against what actually happened in real life. You want the real-life situation. You don't want the dramatization. Now, when it comes to May, December, I don't know if I agree with that. Like, I think that Todd Haynes, if you look at his filmography and you look at the kind of stuff he interested in. He's interested in making artistic statements about stuff. Like that's kind of what Todd Haynes does. And so it seems like with this film, I'm not surprised that he didn't get in contact with the people like, uh, yeah, Lorraine Bobbitt. That's the person who cut off that guy's junk as Mark so eloquently said. But the bottom line is though, that I think that not talking to the person and him kind of doing what he does and making artistic statements, that kind of tracks with who Todd Haynes is. Because he's not going to want to make a true-to-life documentary or dramatization. He's going to want to take this little kernel of truth and expound upon it and say something interesting artistically about it, which is exactly what he does and why this film is so interesting. To be honest, a dramatization about what really happened, I don't give a fuck. I don't care. I don't care. Like, I don't care. That's not what I want. I want a artistic statement, which is what this film gives me. But a dramatization about what happens, I go a lifetime for that. And I agree. I think what he does so brilliantly is he is implicating us. He's pointing the finger at the audience, which I just thought was such was what made it for me. I just thought, yeah, I do watch this stuff and it is exploitive and I'm part of the problem. I felt like he was pointing the figure at everybody. One of the big things that I took away from the movie was that everybody, all the main characters in the, in, in the movie went into the making of the movie within the movie with an agenda, with something that they wanted, like, to get out of it. So, like, Julianne Moore's character wanted to present herself a certain way. Natalie Portman wanted to do some brave, important acting. The husband seemed like he wanted to get closure. He wanted to understand something about his life that he didn't understand himself and the movie seemed very clearly to me at the end to show us all of those people and to show us those dreams being frustrated those hopes being thwarted like nobody got what they wanted out of this movie being made it seemed to me and that i thought like amounted to an essentially an indictment of the whole docudrama especially the the fancy schmancy hollywoodized version of it that mark was talking about earlier like our new version, it seemed to me to be just like highlighting how everybody loves these things, but people don't really get what they think they're going to get out of them. Is it the truth with a capital T? Like we're supposed to finally understand what this big tabloid story was and what it meant. Is it that because Todd Haynes seems to think that that's impossible. Well, exactly. That I think he said that's the kind of grand idea that we have, the story that we tell ourselves about these kinds of story is that it helps us explore the unexplorable or explain the unexplainable, think ourselves into the psychologies of people who we just have no idea how they think. And it's, I think it's a really smart take on the whole genre to say, look, if you, you can try and do that if you like, and good luck to you if you like have a good time doing it. But what you're looking for is impossible. Honestly, I think that we like this stuff because it's like rubbernecking. Like, it's all it is. So this morning, I took my mom to get a tooth taken out. And on my way to go get her, it was like a big traffic jam on the way to her house. And I thought it was going to be like a big wreck or something crazy. It was like a minor thing over on the side. And, and the reason why everyone was going so slow was because people were looking at it. And that is essentially what happens with these kinds of shows. That's the reason why we're so obsessed with Tiger King. That's why we're so obsessed with Lorena Bobbitt. That's the reason why we're so obsessed with all this stuff, because we just look at other people's lives and be like, wow, our life, my life is not as fucked up as that one. Like, that's all that is. And so... That's why I think the dramatization, like, I, I genuinely do not know why people like the stuff so much. I don't understand it. I don't know why we get so obsessed with these kinds of stories. And that's the only conclusion that I can come to unless one of you guys can change my mind on that. I, I genuinely don't understand it. Part of storytelling is about learning about ourselves. But we learn nothing about ourselves when we look at like Lorena Bobbitt. What, what have I learned about myself? Well, I think that's part of it is we have these questions. What makes somebody do that? What makes a 30-something-year-old 
teacher sleep with her 12 year old student. She's horny. I'm, what? I, I, I do not think there's de- anything deeper. I don't. But the crucial thing that someone might want to learn about someone like that is like, why am I different? Because you see or you hear somebody who's done a horrible thing and like the immediate natural human reaction is, you know, I'm speaking for myself here, but like, oh my God, am I monstrous enough to be capable of such a thing? And I think one of the important things that people seek reassurance about with true crime, but also these kinds of reality dramas is to be able to understand the psychology of like morally monstrous people in a rich enough way that lets you say for sure, I am not like that person and I'm not capable of doing those things. I disagree, Lawrence. I think one of the most important things people want to look for in these kinds of stories is is something about themselves, namely that they're not the same. Yeah. I mean, maybe you're onto something, but honestly, when I look at those kind of stories, I think this person lacks a certain level of morality and they're very horny and they make bad decisions. Or this person was so upset about something that they did something very rash, like cut off a person's penis and... That's what they did. I don't think there's anything deeper. I think with May, December in particular, the psychologies of the three main characters were pretty darn interesting, especially Mary Kay Letourneau's of like how, you know, naive the way they put it, you know, that she's a, she's an innocent. This this is how Michael Jackson was described. He never had a chance to have a childhood. That's why he just hangs around with little kids. But this is not even somebody. It seems like it would be different if she was like did this sort of serially as opposed to this being People were, uh, you know, I don't know about that Woody yeah, Allen getting with his, thing. Yeah. his stepdaughter, but then they stayed together. So does it make up for it? If you stay, obviously it's not the mm. same situation as a 12 year old. That's fucking. No, it doesn't make up for it, Mark. <laughs> well, yes, that's one of the main dramas that is revealed here that no, there is no way to have retroactively made that in any way appropriate. <laughs> but I liked how well they explored her manipulation. Natalie Portman was no better than her in in a lot of ways. She was just as exploitive. And then Charles Melton just trying to figure out his own trauma and having that almost in real time, seeing that he finally understood that he had been traumatized by his now wife and wanting to have that conversation, just wanting to explore that and her refusing that, her turning that back around on him and that actually was lifted. I don't know if any of you were able to see that interview with Mary Kay Latorno and Billy with the Australian journalist. And some of the conversations that they were having in that, the discussion was almost lifted, it seemed, word for word when she was talking to him in bed at the end of the movie about how he was in charge and she was the innocent one and that whole idea. And it was really eerie seeing that relationship and the actual relationship explained in that way through her own words. So Sarah, you watched reality. Did anybody else watch that? Yeah. Oh yeah. That entire thing is an FBI transcript, like played out in real time such that when something is redacted, like the characters just disappear for a second. (laughs) Or or they do some other sort of visual effect, uh, which doesn't happen often enough to make it distracting. But that was so good, such that, of course, you could just read the transcript. Presumably, whoever made this film, this was out publicly available, but yet just actually seen it acted out in this very naturalistic way. And like, oh, what is it like to be interrogated by the FBI in your home? And they were very concerned about her pets. But that movie, I felt like that movie had a real message about her and about how she was treated versus what she did and how her perception was so much different than how we perceive her today. That's what I kept thinking. I was like, well, what's the difference? You know, so many of these are just there for entertainment, just for us to, you know, as a rubbernecker, right? And then some of them are actually there to kind of teach us something. I learned something about her and I learned something about the system and about how people are treated unfairly. And And you could call her actually a hero for doing what she did. I don't get that from depictions of Mary Kay Letourneau. I don't know what it is that we're supposed to learn from that, you know, other than, yeah, I'm not like that <laughs> at all. <laughs> and I thought the critique of the Natalie Portman, the actress character, Like that was sort of the most trenchant. And I don't know if that's exactly the same as aren't we all 
salacious Lukey Lou's for w- wanting to do this, but like the way she was getting into her acting and this, this yeah, weird that's scene a whole different thing toward yeah. the end where she like insists on doing the scene again and again yeah. because it's finally becoming real and just how weird <laughs> a method actor mm-hmm. is. <laughs> Grotesque, wasn't it, her character? Because she, like the, uh, Sarah, then you brought up earlier how Charles, yeah, he's trying to process his trauma through all this and Natalie Portman leads him to believe that she is helping him do that, but in doing so just sexually exploits him more because what she wants is to learn what it's like to have sex with this guy. And in order to discover that she manipulates him. Yeah. And so we get the, like, who's, I don't, you know, I don't think we need to ask like who's, who's worse, but it's clearly the case that Natalie Portman's character is not on the up and up and is morally debasing herself in a really awful way. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. The last scene, and I've talked about this before, but the the last scene to me says that it was for nothing because she, I mean, it's really interesting to know what all you guys thought about the last scene. Because to me, it read like Natalie Portman was desperately trying to get to this sense of reality, but couldn't quite get there. And that's important for my reading of the film, according to which nobody gets what they want. But did you get something different from that, Mark? Did you think she was getting there? Part of it, the, the script was terrible. <laughs> That she was, she was reading that, you know, this is a, a cheesy project and she's like trying to be Daniel Day Lewis about it. <laughs> it's just not appropriate. I also found, found earlier when they're showing casting options for the boy and she's like, you know, no, none of them are hot enough, <laughs> which is sort of, you know, gives you some explanation of was she like a child predator or is it the case that if some, you know, oh, he seemed really old. Like, I, I don't know actually the facts of it or whether this matters, but this is the kind of stuff that at least got me thinking of if you're trying to like get in the head of this person, which you wouldn't if it was just like a straight ahead look, this serial molester who like just ruined all these people's lives. Like, you would not want to get in that person's head at all. <laughs> wouldn't you? Isn't that what people do? I'm not trying to think of like true crime dramas where people have played. Mm-hmm. Like child molesters and other kinds of problems. But isn't that exactly... Was that, that film Little Children? Do you remember that? Oh, my yeah, God. Yes. Yeah, I remember that movie Little Children. Who yeah. is the... It was. I mean, was that based on a real thing? I don't even no, remember. No, I don't think... No, no, okay. it was based on a novel, yeah. This film is seemingly sympathetic to the kid. So Charles Melton is pretty sympathetic to Julianne Moore's character, you know, to a degree. It is vicious, to Natalie Portman's character. Mm-hmm. Because if you pay attention, it's different if Natalie Portman's character was like Daniel Day-Lewis or Meryl Streep and a really renowned actor and she's trying to get into the right headspace. She's not a good actress in this film, right? Like, like, like she depicts her, the film depicts her as like a C-level, D-level actress. Mm-hmm. And so all the stuff that she's doing is her trying to get into a the right headspace for like a lifetime movie? Essentially, is what's going on. Sarah, you you disagree, Sarah? But how is that different than Meryl Streep trying to get in the head of Karen Silkwood? Because Meryl Streep is a high level actress and she has a lot of talent. Yeah. And the kind of film that she's doing is a high level film. And Meryl Streep has ethics and wouldn't go too far, right? But acting is that inherently predatory? That's the question that the film is asking is, is acting inherently predatory? The film is kind of saying yes, I think. I don't know if Todd Haynes completely agrees with that, but it's very provocative, right? And so that's where the film really brings out its knives and its claws is with actors. Like it's really taking them to task. The real people is kind of sympathetic to them. I mean, you know, it's, it, it has morals. It's kind of sympathetic to them. But when it comes to actors, it's very vicious, right? And everyone seems like they're acting. I felt like the Mary Kay Letourneau character, Julianne Moore's character, is presenting her way in a certain way to the public, right? We're going to talk about the lisp. The, oh, please, please. Yeah, and that was based on Mary Kay Letourneau's lisp. She had a lisp. Was it a real thing 
but so the way they put the lisp across in the movie seemed to me like it was something that she put on when she wanted to put herself forward as the victim or as the innocent in the situation. It always seemed like something that only came out when she needed to portray herself a certain way. Is that what it's like in real life? I didn't see any interviews with her or does she just have it consistently? I don't know, because that was what Mary Kay Latorno, the real Mary Kay Latorno, was presenting to the public, too. That is also a very good point. I think that everything that I saw with Mary Kay Letourno is is her having a lisp, but the film is doing that for thematic purposes. It's, it's like it's like commenting on the nature of performance or whatnot. And so that's where I think that's where Todd Haynes comes in and he's trying to say something about it because I, I do believe that the real person had the lisp, but in this film, she only brings it on to portray herself in a particular kind of way. And that's the director, the actor is kind of saying something about the nature of these people instead of actually remaining true to life. Yeah. And it's that concept of truth. Again, we have a truth, the truth, and some truths are more truthy. <laughs> For real? Truthiness, yes. We get to the truthiness. Ugh, God, what am I doing? But the Charles Melton character, that was getting more to the core of what the actual truth was, even though it was his truth. But that got buried. I think he didn't even know what it was. I thought that was the most powerful thing about his about his yeah. character's arc, is that he thought that there must be some truth, yeah, some kind of revelatory truth about what happened to him that would make it okay, but he couldn't find it. I think the movie's trying to say that it's just not there. So I have a question, guys. So the real story, the kid was, what, 12? She's an adult. Yeah. Priscilla Presley was 14 when she met Elvis, and Elvis had to be like, what? At least twice her age. No one says anything bad about Elvis, necessarily, this situation that the film is kind of playing with became a phenomenon. What is happening here? Like, what is the film trying to say about these kinds of things? Is it different because he was a man and Priscilla was a girl? Like, like what do we want to say about these kinds of things? Don't you think that there's just two facts of people sexually mature at an age that is much younger than they can have informed consent, right? Isn't it just come down to that? So there's always going to be that that well, ambiguity. People are comfortable with what in happened culture, with Elvis. People are and in people's psychology. I no, no. They're it's just a matter of he sort of like come on. He's dead. If he wasn't dead, it would be a thing now. Isn't one of the points of that? I haven't seen Priscilla, but isn't one of the points of that movie to specifically examine this relationship because it's not okay now? Kinda, but like I, I genuinely don't know because. This film, like, the predatory nature of what happens, like, the centerpiece of this film, May, December, that's the centerpiece of this film. Because she went to jail. I mean, it was like, that was uh-huh. the news story. Elvis is not famous because of Priscilla. Yeah, but, I mean, like, are, but people are far more comfortable with the Elvis thing. Like, and, and so it makes me ask a question. And and people in Led, Ze- Led Zeppelin had, like, 14-year-old groupies. Like, this was a apparently a not terribly unusual thing from the, in the 50s and 60s. And maybe 70s. 70s and even 80s. Yeah. Your heroes that you guys used to revere and love, that they're like this kind of way. Like, I, I genuinely don't know. Because the whole time I was watching May, December, and maybe it was because I watched Priscilla not long before I watched this film. But like, I was just like thinking about the way that in Priscilla, it's commented upon, but it's not a big deal. Whereas this film, it is the entire film. And I don't know what to make sense of that. That's because that is something that is, has been okay. Older men with younger girls has been okay. Or at least if it's not okay, it's understood. Right. And it's far more common than the other way. It's far more common I mean, cougars are a thing now, but but yeah, they tend, the the guys tend to be you know like twenty one whatever. But it, it just it just makes me wonder about is this misogyny that's happening here? Like like why is it partly it was such a big deal when it came to her, but not such a big deal when it came to him? And maybe it was just because he was a pop star. Maybe that's what it was. Even when it happened with him, it was like. I think teen boys would be like, ooh, yeah, you got with a cougar. Like, at least that was a thing at the time that it was sort of like, did she really do anything wrong? He totally wanted it, you know, because he was a 13-year-old boy, you know. She was also still married. She was a mother. She had to be punished, right? She had to be punished for going after 
what she wanted, which happened to be a 12-year-old boy. It was still child rape. It's still child rape no matter what. Yes. Which they don't say at all in the whole movie. But anyway, but it's it's all child rape. And the reality is, is that far more men do this than women. And that's why we can't stop talking about this because it is, it's so unusual. And just like you said earlier, Al, it's like, oh, of course I would never do that. You know, like, I'm not that person. I can pat myself on the back. I'm never going to be that person, right? We can continue to congratulate ourselves that we are not those types of people. Whereas the other way, there's there are countless stories of 34-year-old men going after underage girls. Is that what we're doing? So, so, so we're watching this to pat ourselves on the back that we're not that way. Is, is that I really what's motivating us? I don't think so. Us? I think it's about just the fact that there are Mm-hmm. crazy shit happens to people. And that is interesting to us. It really comes down to that is it's not necessarily, Oh, there, but for the grace of God, go I, or I am never not so foolish that I would, uh, you know, both those things are involved. Dirty John is about this woman being conned by a pretty obvious scumbag. <laughs> and she doesn't see through it for quite a while. <laughs> and it's just sort of a train wreck. Watch, you know, the fact that this is over like eight episodes or something, it just seemed a little ridiculous that, you know, this cannot get resolved much more quickly. Um, and so, yeah, you feel, but that's even, they talk about that in the movie, of course, about like, how could you be so dumb? So, but you know, it shows it from her point of view and then his point of view and the kids point of views. That's what drama is. It's just how people react to unusual situations and often bad characters. But it's based on a true story. Let's get back to the fact, the, the fact that it's real or that these stories mm-hmm. are based on are based on true events because everything that we get out of all the like the the crazy twists and turns the weird stuff even the gory sinister crime element we can have all that in fiction so if what we want is the cool crazy story then why do we need it to be based on real life is it just a marketing stint is it that they can say like the old remember this thing from the tabloids people we all watch this movie about it I think it's voyeuristic, basically. I, th- I, I think that, that our, cu- our culture has inculcated, I'm going to say us, I'm going to include everyone here, even though I don't engage in this kind of media usually because I just don't like it for this reason. Has our, 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 has our culture just inculcated in us a disregard for the reality of these kinds of stories so that we're happy just engaging in a souped up, silly, dramatized version of something for entertainment purposes of something horrible that happened to someone in real life? So just just last point, because I thought this was, I was watching uh, Inventing Anna for this, and Inventing Anna was a great TV show, but by existing, it did some really horrible things. It made Inventing Anna, uh, it made Anna, whatever her name, the, the actual person, a celebrity in her own right more than she already was. She's now going to be able to make a very good living out of the fact that she's ruined people's lives, like because she gets to be a celebrity now. It includes the stories of the people whose lives she ruined, but their side characters and their suffering like is present to the show's credit. Their suffering is present, but doesn't really matter. And it's not the thing that you remember from the show. I worry that shows like this, even the very fact that they do seem to be there mainly just for entertainment, makes them just inherently exploitative in a way that I don't think is, mm-hmm. is necessary. But it's also implicating our own media, because these stories are inescapable. I mean, I didn't watch anything about Mary Kay Letourneau and Billy. I didn't engage in any of that stuff, but it was, you know, it was on every single tabloid newspaper. It was in the New York Times. You couldn't flip past, you know, a commercial about it on 2020 or something. You just could not escape it. So I knew this story, whether I liked it or not. I wasn't interested in engaging this. I had other things to do during the 90s that actually didn't involve watching a lot of TV. (laughs) So, But for some reason, I knew all of the details about this story. And I just think that that also is really interesting. It wasn't me being a looky-loo. It was put in front of my face every single day for a certain period of time. Are there any other uh, sort of before we get out of here? I feel I feel silly that I put time into. I didn't quite finish, but I got through four episodes of The Shrink Next Door. Did you guys watch that on Apple TV? It's no, just, I never watched it. No. So it is Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd, Paul Rudd, right. and that's Catherine right. Hunt doing right. doing very Jewish characters. So just seeing them doing those voices, it's actually listed as a dramedy. Like there's uh-huh. nothing funny about it, other than like looking at those guys is kind of funny, and hearing them do those voices is a little funny. Not intentionally. Uh, is it good? Did I, you enjoy I'll, it? I'll probably. I, I think it is good, but 
like I knew this general story. It's about a, a psychiatrist that it's sort of like the Brian Wilson thing where, you know, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys was messed up and he found the psychiatrist who just wheedled his way and like took over his finances. And so it's that kind of situation of Will Ferrell plays a rich guy that this, uh, you know, he needs he does need help. But this guy clearly takes advantage of him and gets him to estrange himself from his family and blah, blah, blah. And so I, you know, you know where it's going. I'm a little interested. I'll probably go ahead and watch the last couple episodes because I'm interested of like, how much are they reflecting on the Paul Rudd character, the the villain of his motivations? And they're actually getting a little bit into it to make you kind of understand like why he would just, Oh, sure. Okay. I'll take advantage of this opportunity that's available to me. I feel like I was poor when I was, growing up and it's sort of not fair that this other person's in this situation we're friends so just you know why you could just rationalize taking advantage of someone that you supposedly care about so i like this i wish i'm mad at you lawrence that you didn't tell me that you didn't engage with the notes document and tell me about joe versus carol so i could i would have watched some of that because i did not watch tiger king i'm like the only person i mean of course i know I the basic either. story i'm sorry but guys my I would probably actually enjoy the dramatization because I never saw the first one. <laughs> Although I will tell you that it, it got crucified by the critics. And I don't know if the critics crucified mm. it because they were too familiar with the story already or because they didn't like the, but it got like a 33 rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So I don't know what you want to say about that, but we can talk about that as after show. I mean, mm. it might be fun. Maybe not. <laughs> if that was, if that was actually. You said it was I enjoyed good. it. I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was well made. 33% yeah. critic score, 87% audience score. These other two that we've reality and, and May, December are the other way around. They're very well rated by critics, not as well rated by audiences. I think it's, so. I think that audiences are going to, well, they found May, December, probably just a regular, like not us, like not the hoity toity critics that are, in the room today, but the regular hoi polloi, the regular people, they probably found May December really weird, and it made, probably made them very, very, very uncomfortable. And we didn't even talk about the score. Yeah, yeah, the telegraphs. Like you might have thought this is just a drama, but we're going to play some really sinister music, like right off the bat. <laughs> right off the bat, they're making lunch. Oh my god. <laughs> Like, okay, so like the film starts, and like I don't know if it was right at the beginning, but it's like really sinister fucking jaws ass music and they're making a sandwich like it's so strange the direction do we have enough hot dogs i don't know so unnerving all the way through and i also want to call out lawrence for something because last week on the after talk we were talking about what else to cover, and I suggested Saltburn because people were talking about it. You gave me a little uh -huh. content warning. You said it's a bit much, and I tell you something: nothing in Saltburn made me feel anywhere near as uncomfortable as May December did. Like any given scene of May December. Really? Are you serious? Even the bathtub scene didn't make you feel weird. Even the bathtub scene. <laughs> wow. I'm talking about comparatively. Like obviously, when we watched the bathtub scene, my partner laughed at me because my reaction was like, "Oh," because I'd heard. There's this crazy bathtub scene, and I saw this thing, and I was like, oh, really? That's the best? <laughs> but but my, my point is, right. May, De May, December was deeply disturbing the whole way through. All those performances were exquisitely yeah, awkward. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and yeah, if you want to feel weird about watching something on a screen, don't watch Saltburn, watch that. Yeah, it was icky. Interesting. I still say don't watch Saltburn. Although, I will say this, that people that I didn't think would like Saltburn watched the movie, and they really enjoyed it. I don't know what's going on with our culture right now. <laughs> people are watching Saltburn and enjoying it. We're in a weird place, guys. The, the pandemic messed us up. We needed Saltburn because for some reason Brideshead Revisited wasn't gay enough already. So <laughs> I haven't watched it yet. Uh, did, did you have anything more on topic? Uh, Sarah, see, you watched the act. That was one of the few like that I yeah. had watched the documentary and then I watched the dramatization and I actually found it did add something. Like most of the time I wouldn't care yeah. Uh, oh, the one I was trying to remember before is the thing about Pam, which is Renee Zellweger from. Yes, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed oh, that. I didn't see the Zellweger movie. Is just a really good actress. But there's like so much out there. I mean, there really is. But I loved the act. A whole other relevant thing in a phase of creativity, I decided to add Aaron Brockovich to my list of movies. Oh, that I was watching oh interesting. It is on paper a very similar kind of story, like a real thing that happened to a real person except Aaron Brockovich gets to be the hero instead of the villain. And 
I don't really have a second part to this thought, but it was just interesting to me how you can get like totally different, totally different movies just by telling a totally different story about a totally different kind of person. Maybe it's not an interesting thought after all. <laughs> I'm very interested, Al. Thank you for sharing that. No, thought. I think that goes along with reality, the movie that was based on Reality Winner. And I loved the act. I watched every single episode. I look forward to it. It was super interesting, but I didn't learn anything other than what Munchausen by proxy is. That was the only thing I really learned. Whereas with reality or even with Aaron Brockovich from back in the day, like those kinds of movies that are based on real people, it, it seems like there's some sort of underlying message there that we're supposed to glean from it and learn. And I don't think we get that from the act. I don't know. What did you think, Mark? Did you learn anything from watching the act? I mean, I think it's it's exactly what you said, that, that that is a syndrome that you probably weren't aware of before hearing this story, and now you know about it. And you get to right. see it acted in a very vivid way. I just thought the performances were really good. But yeah, it's not good. about the murder. Like, that's, of course, why it's newsworthy. But it's mm-hmm. about the circumstance and the relationship and just how... Oh, a new kind of child abuse. Like I remember Mommy Dearest being about Joan Crawford being another big thing. I don't know if I actually saw it, but it was a big thing when I was a kid. You should definitely watch it. It's a really good movie. Yeah, because people were, oh, did you know that this kind of child abuse can happen by a famous person that you wouldn't suspect? So it's always enlightening when something like this comes along. Dirty John, like, hey, watch out for guys. They might be lying. Maybe you should check their stories. Like this is this is the basic lesson. I think you only need that like once wow. per lesson. I don't need watch out for guys. They may be lying. That is all that you got. Hashtag facts. Whoa, sounds like Sarah. We might need to have a after dark so Sarah can tell us her story. I need to vent about guys and they're lying. I mean, I'm sorry I lied to you, Sarah. The, the, the subgenre of like reality or Richard Jewell was another one that I had referenced. I saw several years oh, yeah. ago mm, of, yeah. pe- of getting in I trouble with that. the law because like yeah. that's just an interesting thing if you've never experienced it. And I guess back to this question of why do it based on a real story? Well, because it's there. I mean, the ones that are not based on real stories, usually the better they are, it's because they're at least kind of close to that. There was something like the night before or something. There was a, a HBO or Showtime series that's all HBO. Yes, yeah, you, HBO is that what it was called? Like the night, the night before, the yeah, night, the night before. before. That's that is really good. Just all oh about gosh, this guy has been show. accused of murdering somebody, and it sort of goes through just how scary it is to be arrested. And like these are so. If it, I'm sure that that was probably fiction. I don't know for it sure, was. but yeah, it was. It, it was, was clearly based. Like fiction writers should research things. <laughs> And so if it seems like it's too just made up, like somebody made up what they thought it would be like to be in prison, like the the way they would write this on a sitcom in the 70s or something like they, no, they're not going to go and talk to police officers about I, Barney Miller. I don't think went to police stations and found out how the daily lives. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like <laughs> that is just the the sign of hacky fiction is that you don't base it in reality. So whether, you know, yes, it's kind of it's definitely exploitative. To have actual people and their lives being revealed, but like that's what we like fiction for, even when it's pure fiction, is because we feel like we're seeing something, at least mm-hmm. with some kinds of fiction, some something real. Isn't it interesting how some stories, but the more fictional, the further removed from reality a story is, doesn't it seem like it would be easier to find the thing that you want to say, or rather, isn't it easier to construct a fictional story based around the thing that you want to say, for instance, like how scary it is to be accused of a serious crime, rather than if you did take a real-life version of that story and tried to make that point through a real-life story, the point that you're trying to make gets complicated by the reality, right? You've got to stick to all these facts. You've got to be bound by reality in a really specific way. Or you don't let yourself be bound by reality and you're accused of doing a bad job or potentially like libel or defamation or something. Whereas a lot of the time when you're trying to make a movie or a TV show about a real life story and you go looking for the truth that's already in the story and try and flesh that out, doesn't that seem like it would be a much harder thing to do than start with the thing that you're trying to say and find the nearest approximation to a realistic sounding story that's going to do the thing that you want it to do rather than go digging for like a nugget of truth that must be in every horrible real life tabloid story? Mm hmm. Doesn't it seem, though, that 
the hardest part about it are finding those nuggets of truth. So if you're going with the same thing about how scary it is to be arrested, you can put that into Game of Thrones, right? Which is not our world, but is linked to our world in lots of important ways, which is sort of the point, right? So there are things that you really do have to get right that aren't necessarily part of the physical space or the physical reality, but it has to have that same truth that we can recognize. And I think that's really, really hard to do, no matter what genre it is. I think maybe we've determined that May-December is good because it is inspired, it is loosely based. I was thinking about Bonfire of the Vanities in terms of uh, this Tom Wolfe book that he famously, you know, he wrote The Right Stuff. He was a journalist. Mm -hmm. And so all of his books, even if they're fiction, are very, very researched. And so, yes, this was like what it's like for a rich person to be arrested and go through this kind of thing. And I just was looking like, okay, there was a real life inspiration. There was an event, but I didn't know that until I just looked this up now, even though I read the whole book at some point. And that's probably better that you're right, Sarah, that, you know, you can just tell the story with the message that you want to tell. And it relates to real life in some way, but don't, don't try to like pull it out of the real life occurrence. Otherwise you get something very shallow. Like what I just said about dirty John, that the real life occurrence is, Uh you know, watch out, get a good lawyer or whatever the, (laughs) the, that's the advice. That's the message. Don't believe men. Ironically, though, with May, December, I think it would have made it a much worse film if they'd abstracted too far away from the, what was ultimately the real story, because the movie is about how we treat stories mm-hmm. like that. And the reality of those stories is really important to the thesis yeah, of the film. It would have been too distracting. I love that movie, though. I love May, December. I wish that I'd gotten more love at the awards. Made me incredibly uncomfortable watching May, December. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Was it the very fast sex scene that made you the most uncomfortable? Which was which is the part? It was, it was the, just the, unsettling. The, hot the whole thing. Her reading the letter made me extremely uncomfortable. Yeah, Todd Haynes did his job. I consider that revenge on Lawrence for Lawrence inflicting <laughs> horror movies on Sarah and making Al watch. My horror movies gross. do not do that. My horror movies are fun. You're like, look at this stupid person about to die. That movie was like. Creepy shit is all around. Like that movie, it messed me up. I did not enjoy that at all. I had little nightmares about that. Thanks, guys. True horror is Hollywood all along. So is that a don't watch it, Lawrence? No, watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Just understand that you're going to be unsettling. You probably need some like THC to get through it. (laughs) I think we as media consumers are looking for interesting experiences, whereas plenty of people I know, no, I don't need to be. disturbed in that way that is not actually add to is it actually entertaining you know it's it's it might be a, a narrower uh question does it give you the feel that you are looking for yes so perhaps not that this film but i'd still recommend it al, al is this a recommend from you yeah i mean it, it, it's deeply disturbing with the terrific performances and i think is, is a very important and timely i thought it was great all right so long everybody bye guys bye 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 Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.